1: Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work.
0: Get out! Come on!
1: We don't know where the moon came from.
0: Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible.
1: We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hello and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast perched at the intersection of biology and technology. I'm Lauren Richardson, PhD, scientist, and former journal editor. This episode is a journal club, meaning that our conversation centers around a recently published article from the scientific literature, its findings, implications, and the new opportunities it presents. Today's article has a fantastic title, Hunting the Eagle Killer. A Cyanobacterial Neurotoxin Causes Vacuolar Myelinopathy, which was published in Science. And I have the senior author, the also fantastically named Susan B. Wilde, PhD associate professor at the University of Georgia, here to discuss the multidisciplinary effort to uncover the cause of mass eagle mortality events in the American Southeast. And what I really enjoyed about this article and the conversation is that it weaves together so many different organisms, including, of course, eagles and other birds, but also invasive plants and cyanobacteria, which are also known as blue-green algae, and it takes advantage of a huge array of different technologies and methods to uncover not just the cause of eagle deaths, but a larger ecosystem dysfunction that led to the deaths. Our conversation starts with Susan describing the history of these eagle die-off events.
1: In 1994, there were 29 bald eagle mortalities observed at the Gray Lake, Arkansas. And uh, veterinary pathologists and eagle biologists traveled to the site to try to help understand What was going on there so they were looking for any kind of toxins that might be in the environment any diseases that could be shared amongst the birds and really didn't come up with anything conclusive but they did find uh, upon close examination of thin sections of the brain tissue these open spaces and they're referred to as lesions but specifically it's an intermyelinetic edema, which means like the outer layer of the brain sort of spreading apart and the connections are not as good. Initially, this disease was described as avian vacular myelinopathy. So we don't know exactly why those lesions occur, but we know that they present in the birds that have impairment, neurological impairment and that it was a consistent finding for both the eagles and then the coots, which are a prey bird for those eagles. So early on, there was evidence that this was gonna be a food chain transfer because both the eagles and the coots had the same type of open spaces in the myelin layer of their brains. The same eagle biologists and pathologists went back to their home states to North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia. And lo and behold, we're able to recognize the disease was also occurring there. So I didn't come in to this research project until 2001. And at that point, they already knew there were 10 locations across the southeastern US where the birds had these very specific characteristic uh, vacuolar myelinopathy. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. I I think that's really interesting that there's like this big mass die-off event and then people are like, oh, that's so surprising, so shocking. And then they go home and they're like, oh, this is happening here too. It's kind of like you need that big event to see the pattern initially. Yes. I think if we hadn't had an eagle die-off, if eagles weren't affected by this, it's very
1: difficult to detect this disease because the only way you're going to be able to diagnose the disease with wild birds is if you're able to get the bird and to keep it cold and then go through this diagnostic procedure. If that bird's been dead in the field for a day or so, it's very difficult to tell whether or not the brain is just sort of disintegrating or you really have vacuolar lesions.
0: So the effects of this vacular myelinopathy, these big bird die-offs, you mentioned were seen, you know, in 1994, 25 years ago, and people have been looking for the culprit ever since. So why do you think it has been so difficult to identify what the cause of this is? Well,
1: during that initial outbreak that occurred in Arkansas, they assembled a team to study it and had some pretty good funding in place. But after having come up, empty on on those investigations, then that group disbanded. And when I got interested in this in 2001, I was working at the Marine Lab in Charleston, and we were studying harmful algal blooms in the marine system and in freshwater. And a group of egobiologists were documenting the eagle recovery there in South Carolina. So I worked with them and then with the money that we had for studying harmful algal blooms from the CDC and EPA, we were able to find that common denominator among all those reservoirs where we knew that the birds were dying. Because while they had had a lot of egobiologists and pathologists interested in it, and not necessarily a limnologist or an aquatic ecologist who was going to dig into the plants and the mud and the water and see what was there that might be
0: causing a problem. So the problem had been viewed as one of like eagles and birds. And when you came to this problem, you were looking at, you know, what's the ecosystem that these birds are in? And, you know, you already had this hint that this was a food chain issue because the coots had it, which are the food of the eagles. So, you know, what is the coot eating? So what did you find when you compared all these different lakes? Well, I did look in the water column initially because most
1: of what we know about harmful algal blooms is about those that are in the water column. It's an obvious scum on the water. Like you wouldn't want to swim in it if you saw a dense algal bloom.
0: Like a, like a red tide.
1: A red tide, right. You can't really see that one very well either, but it's certainly dangerous. This one was very different. It was a harmful algal bloom. It was basically hiding on the underside of the leaves, attached really well to the submerged aquatic plants. And then it's sort of cryptic because you have a blue-green algae growing on a green leaf. So we named the cyanobacteria. After Hydrilla, because that was the most common plant infestation occurring in the lakes where birds were sick and dying from AVM. Cyanobacteria can make some uh, very potent toxins that affect our liver, uh, can cause cancer, but uh, the ones that we were concerned about were those that affected nerves or neurotoxins. And so the hypothesis is that these potentially toxic, very dense cyanobacteria growing on Hydrilla favorite food of coots. They will stop over and and stay the winter in reservoirs that have abundant submerged aquatic vegetation. And then once they're sick, they are easy prey for the eagles, which are a little bit lazy. They don't mind taking something that's a little easier to catch. And those are probably the ones that have already consumed toxin that will be transferred to the eagle.
0: You had identified this plant species, which is very common in the lakes where you are seeing these um, bird deaths that has this cyanobacteria kind of glommed onto it that is being, you know, eaten by the coots, which is then being eaten by the eagles and is leading to death. And we know that cyanobacteria can produce some really nasty toxins and metabolites. So the scope of this work is to find out what it is these this cyanobacteria is producing that's causing the disease. You know, I'd like to segue into you know the methods and results of your paper, just with the question of how did you start the investigation for this metabolite or toxin as the causative agent? When we initially
1: found this cyanobacteria that was unknown, Growing densely on the plants that the waterfowl are eating, we we started trying to see if we could recreate vacuolar myelinopathy using a bird assay. And initially it was ducks and mallards um, that were put out on a lake where this was already occurring, and they would get sick in as few as five days. In a, you know, having been released into a field, you could see that they were neurologically impaired. In feeding trials that we did in the lab with the mallards and with chickens, eventually uh, we could see that they also became neurologically impaired and developed the same uh, vacuolar lesions. So while we didn't know exactly what it was, we knew that it was in this hydrilla cyano complex that we were able to feed them with. So the much harder part is breaking it down to that toxic fraction That was actually causing it. So, we needed a a bioassay that was a little bit less involved than having to feed it to a chicken to determine that. So, we started using uh, seriodaphnia and uh, their little tiny zooplankton Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. zebrafish. So, when we had these two bioassay organisms, we were able to then split out as many fractions on an high pressure liquid chromatography machine that we could so that then we could start to say which fraction causes this neuropathy. Uh, And it was the lipid soluble fraction. And in fact, there was a very large peak on the HPLC trace when we had a, a toxic sample. So we started to go after what was in that peak. And that's finally clean enough, that you can evaluate it and try to determine what its molecular structure is.
0: Yeah, whereas it would take an extremely long time to assay all these chemicals if you had to feed it to a chicken, section the brain, look and see is, does it have this neurological defect? You know, if you can give it to something like Daphnia, this is zooplankton or a zebrafish, that just makes your experimental setup so much faster. And then you take this, you know, huge mix of natural products that's in the slurry of plant plus cyanobacteria, like separating them out on like the spectrum of how hydrophobic they are. And then, you know, each of those fractions looking and testing in your, in your Daphnia model and in your zebrafish model to see how toxic they are. And so you've, you've, you've honed in on this very hydrophobic, very lipophilic compound. So what was next for characterizing this compound further?
1: Uh, We've been working with EPA here in Athens and Matthew Henderson and John Washington helped us a lot to first do the HPLC and then mass spec and then being able to see what is the molecular weight, what ions are in here and how many of them. At the same time that the German group was using NMR to be able to get to what the actual structure looked like. So we had dual lines of evidence that uh, confirmed that the same structure came up that had the five bromines and two indole rings, but this is pretty unique in terms of a freshwater cyanobacterial toxin. It's lipid soluble. Most of them are water soluble. And the alkaloids there have been a number of those that have been characterized and they turn out to be pretty lethal. So. I think there was a concern once we knew it was sort of in that group of compounds.
0: I thought that it was interesting that you mentioned in your paper that other bromine containing compounds such as bromethylene and hexachlorophene are also known to induce something kind of akin to uh, right. of myelinopathy in birds.
1: We had a couple of lines of evidence that indicated that bromide was going to be really critical. And that bromine has to come from somewhere. And bromine doesn't really exist in our environment. It's going to be bromide. It's going to be connected to a salt, but there's not much in the water. And there's usually, you know, not high levels in the sediment, but it turns out that the hydrilla can hyperaccumulate it in higher concentrations in plants than it would be in the sediment and 500 times higher than what it would be in the water. So it was an indication that the plant itself might be providing the bromide and the culture media that Stefan was used to culture up the toxin. So we would have enough for a a trial to test this, had no um, bromine in it. So he added potassium bromide to the culture. And then he got that same peak and the HPLC trace that was uh, lipid soluble, and it was that brominated compound. So it really wasn't until Stefan was able to induce toxin production in that cyanobacterial colonies growing in the lab that we knew for certain that that was going to induce toxin production.
0: That's such a complex interaction between like what's happening in the lab, what you're seeing in the field. And then, you know, just the like experimental design that you went through to, to unpick this because, you know, the way, you know, it's written in the, in your paper, it sounds like you were trying to grow up these plants and the cyanobacteria in the lab. And you're like, they're not producing this toxin. And then you compared them to the plants from the wild and you see Oh, it's, you know, these are producing this brominated compound. The ones in the lab aren't like, maybe we need to add bromine. And, and that's like, that's kind of the, like, you know, it sounds like something that's like, was probably really frustrating and annoying when it happened. You're like, why won't this produce the toxin that we need? But it actually like was the key, kind of like a key failure you needed to actually identify the compound. So what, what are the thoughts as to where like bromine is coming from in the environment?
1: Well, there are plenty of natural sources of bromine and also anthropogenic sources, man-made sources. There's bromine in sediment layers. In fact, brominated compounds that we use for fire retardants, uh, pesticides, fumigants. There's bromide that's produced from automobile exhaust and coal-fired power plants. And so we have seen a lot of research now is being done on increasing levels of bromide in the water uh, sediment. And then this is another way of really concentrating it by having these invasive aquatic plants capable of taking it up in much higher concentration than it is even in the sediments. So it's another reason why hydrilla is causing problems in the lakes that it's getting into.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's a natural source of bromides. Then there's the anthropogenic sources of bromides. And, you know, one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that these lakes, these bodies of water where you're seeing the avian die-offs are man-made lakes. (laughs) So it's like so many different elements of, of human interaction that are happening here. Where you've got the the man-made lakes, you've got the invasive species, you've got the bromide pollutants that are all kind of working in concert together to lead to this the production of this toxin, which then kills the coots and then kills the eagle. It's like a perfect storm of like ecosystem dysfunction. Yeah. So you you've used these different structural biology techniques you know that it's got these bromines, it's got these indole rings. In the next section of the paper, you look at the gene clusters in the cyanobacteria genome that are responsible for the production of this metabolite. So, why is it important to identify the genes that encode this metabolism? Right. If you know what
1: those genes are, the gene clusters that are capable of taking it all the way to that final structure, it not only allows for this confirmation of of the final structure as being possible within this particular species, but now we can search for those gene clusters and other species. I doubt that this is the only cyanobacteria or the only algal species that could make this toxin. And uh, I would think it would make sense to search even in marine associated systems because of the a prevalence of bromide.
0: Right, right. It's so easy to do genomic sequencing now on on samples from, you know, say the water column or something like that to be able to look and see, is this actually a quite a common contaminant or um, toxin that we're seeing in ecosystems that have algae in them? So at what point did you name the toxin? I, it has a pretty <laughs> fantastic name that you came up with. Well, I got... To name the
1: cyanobacteria with a lot of help from Jeffrey Johansson. And uh, actually, my husband, Dayton Wild, was involved with actually getting the final classification for the cyanobacteria, which turned out to be not only a new species, but a new genus. And we could call it what we wanted as long as it was a combination of Greek and Latin that fits with the rules for naming cyanobacteria. So we named it. Eagle killer living on hydrilla. So then, when we wanted to name the toxin, Timo suggested that we just call it eager killer toxin or toxin, which really rolls off the tongue, right? Very easy to say. Or aetx. Yes, far
0: better. <laughs> so you've isolated and characterized this toxin. You know the genes that produce it. What is the definitive proof for you know this toxin being what caught, what's responsible for the disease? Well, we knew that we needed to have a purified toxin
1: that we could use to test on our gold standard chicken assay. And that very last trial, when we were just Testing purified toxin produced by the cyanobacteria in the presence of bromide, then we did get vacuolar myelinopathy in those chickens, verifying that that alone could cause these type of lesions and neuropathy. But when we sent our paper into Science the first time, one of our reviewers said, "Well, really like you to bring it back to the wild birds." So we processed some of these coots from Thurman and found the exact same toxin peak in their tissues and fairly significant concentration. So
0: it brought it back to, this is what the birds in the field have. So you and your colleagues have ident- you know, solved this 25 year mystery of what's, what's the cause of uh vacuolar myelinopathy but if there's anything I know about science, it's that it's never done. Right. So what are the remaining unanswered questions about this? We just
1: feel like there's a whole ecosystem there that is affected by this that's kind of invisible to us at this point. I uh, worked with uh, John Mayers here and Sonia Hernandez to look at the vulnerability of the, the herpetofauna, our amphibians and reptiles, and found that they also develop neuropathy and vacuolar lesions and the fish can get the same lesions. So we want to uh, see what the extent is of this phenomenon across the U.S. Uh, We'd like to know what the source of it is. Where did it come from? Like we know where hydrilla comes from, but where did the cyanobacteria come from? And we still don't know whether the toxin causes the lesions or the toxin causes cellular imbalance and that causes lesions or whether the toxin causes these seizures. So we don't know if it's a downstream uh, effect or immediate. And so that the mechanism of that toxin acting on the body is something that we are continuing to pursue. And we don't know yet if mammals are susceptible, which is very important. It took me till the end to mention how it might affect people. I am very concerned. Like until the point where we saw this toxin in the fish and coot tissues that people eat, I kind of felt like it could be a problem. And all of the taxa on either side of us, evolutionarily, are affected. I don't think we get a pass. So we think it's very critical to do a mouse trial as soon as possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, especially critical that we were talking about these being, you know, man made bodies of water. They're also. You know, popular fishing spots. So it's not like Mm -hmm. there's no direct food chain link to humans. Yeah. What are some of the possible solutions for eradicating this invasive plant and its toxin producing cyanobacteria?
1: Yes. Well, people have been trying to control hydrilla for a while with a lot of different methods. We're not going to eliminate hydrilla everywhere. And I wouldn't even think that we should. Uh, It it could certainly provide some ecosystem benefits if it doesn't have the toxic cyanobacteria growing on it. But in locations where it does, then you could use some physical or chemical or biological control. Physical control doesn't work really well because you harvest it, you break it up, and it spreads around. It can spread just by stem, tubers, turions. So that tends to be expensive and and a short-term fix. Chemicals also fall into that same problem of being sort of a vicious cycle that you release the nutrients and kill back the plants, but they're going to grow again. We uh, have seen success using sterile triploid grass carp. They only live about twelve years. They do their best job of eating a lot of hydrilla early on, and then they're going to die. I I know that Georgia DNR has concerns with escapement, but I think the larger concern here is that if we leave it in place, then it's a toxic
0: habitat for the wildlife
1: and fish that they're protecting.
0: Is this something we have to worry about spreading to other lake systems or having kind of larger scale impacts on ecosystems than it does today? Yeah, I think it can be spread
1: fairly easily on uh, boat trailers as they move from one site where it would be occurring to say a new site that didn't have it because hydrilla is an amazing invader and the cyanobacteria is hardy as well. It doesn't mind getting dried out, frozen, and it still survived. But I think the fact that the eagle population is recovering is a really good sign and a good indicator that it's not happening in lots and lots of places. But where it is and where we have the ability to control it, I think we can reduce potential spread and risk for future sites.
0: That's good to hear that this hasn't reached the stage where it's impacting eagle numbers overall, but, you know, is kind of localized. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So one thing that I really appreciated about your study was the range of techniques and the strength of evidence that you provided, you know, techniques from NMR and, you know, TOF and uh, crystallography to genomics, you know, looking at the impacts of this toxin um, across different species from the tree of life. Uh, and your background is in aquatic ecology, you know, which is very <laughs> distinct from those fields. Like, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, as this project was progressing, how you integrated these new techniques and, you know, domains of science.
1: Well, it helps that I had some solid collaborators that were able to help me understand how their technology could contribute to this project. And in many cases, I recognize that the technology would help whether I could do it or not. And since this science story has come out, we've had offers from other researchers across the U.S. with more capability and that are interested and want to contribute. And I think the way forward in science in general is more collaboration. All of the big questions are going to be so interdisciplinary that we should not try to do them alone and that... The fact that this was an international group that worked so well together is the reason that I think that we got to the answer. So I would like to invite the public in on this collaborative venture. And I think citizen science community have really advanced a lot of other harmful algal bloom monitoring programs. And this is one where people recognize what hydrilla looks like and they're willing to stuff some in a bag and... And send to us or other labs that'll have capability of of, uh, determining where that toxin is present, uh, that it could be really helpful because more eyes on this will help us to improve our ability
0: to detect it. Perfect. Uh, Susan, thank you so much for joining me on Journal Club today. I really enjoyed our conversation and thank you for telling me about this research.
1: Thank you. This has been fun.
0: And that's it for BioEats World this week. BioEats World is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lauren Richardson, with help from the A16Z bio team and Seven Morris, and is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you've got questions about this episode or want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld, that's one word, at a16z.com. And for more on how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.